you know, being a smaller company, kind of putting together this graphical, you know, message and getting the word out of all the safe things that we were going to do and how we were going to operate. It was very well received and got a lot of feedback. And then four days later, we were shut down. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And I am joined, as always, by Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro. Good to talk to you again, Daniel. And welcome back, Russ. You had a, you had a week off back there. Yeah, yeah, I did. I'm coming to you now on slight time delay from Kansas City on the Kansas side, not on the Missouri side. And uh, so, yeah, last week was a little bit of travel and resettling for me. Ooh, birthplace of Box Office Magazine in 1920. Indeed, I know. It's crazy. Yeah, so I'm really just bringing it back to the roots. That's all this is about. That was the whole point of this trip. It had nothing to do with parents, grandparents, childcare, none of, none of that. It was all about Box Office Pro. So this week, we are going to be joined in a few minutes by Chris Johnson, the CEO of Classic Cinemas. Classic Cinemas operates 15 theaters in Illinois and Wisconsin, anchored by the 1,000-seat Tivoli Theater, which is a a wonderful kind of big classic movie house. Their family-owned regional chain that reopened in May. Most of their theaters reopened in May, but they ultimately and quickly found that it was not feasible to stay in business without new releases. So we're going to talk to Chris about his experience this year and his outlook going forward. But in the meantime, of course, it just wouldn't be an episode of this podcast without us touching on Tenet, the Warner Brothers movie, which has now shifted to yet another new release date. It is now set for a domestic opening on September 3rd with uh, an overseas release likely coming before that. And with that, even that September 3rd opening may not be in all domestic markets. So Daniel, tell me what's going on there based on what you know. You know, it's interesting if we we go back to those early episodes of the podcast, we spoke about a reality here in the US that wide releases might have to be on a regional or city by city basis. And that certainly seems to be the case for Tenet domestically seeing a select cities release beginning on September 3rd. It means that the movie will probably go wide, but not just all at once. And the same happens in overseas markets. Overseas, it'll be hitting 70 markets starting on August 26th, ahead of its uh, US release. I've seen some headlines out there saying it's highly unusual. It actually is not the case for a big budget Hollywood tentpole. We've seen these sort of releases dating back a number of years. Uh, Something like the first Avengers movie, for example, also premiered. Yeah, Marvel was pretty consistently doing staggered openings until pretty recently. Absolutely. And uh, there's a lot of changes after COVID to how movies are working or not working, this isn't one of them. This is something that the uh, reality of... Even like a Bond movie would reliably open a week earlier in the UK than it would open in the US. And as it was scheduled, I think, domestically this year with No Time to Die. So yeah, it's important to sort of note there are big changes happening. This isn't one of them. However, Russ, one thing that might stick long term, it remains to be seen at this point, is the breaking news that we got right after we recorded the interview we're going to feature today, 
which is concerning AMC's deal to welcome back universal titles to its screens under what looks like are significantly reduced theatrical exclusivity windows. The window there goes from an average of two months and 21 days for electronic sell-through to uh, at least 17 days for Universal titles playing at AMC, at which point those titles would go over to premium video on demand, including AMC's own VOD platform, where they would get a share of the revenue from those digital rentals. Yeah, this is a big deal. I admit that when I first saw the headline, it was like, oh, well, of course, AMC and Universal reconciled. There was no chance that AMC was going to go into 2021 with no plans to play the new Fast and Furious movie. Of course, they're making a deal to work together again. But these specific circumstances are a lot more radical and a lot more eyebrow-raising than I think any of us anticipated. So, Daniel, you know, give us a, a little bit of quick, informed recap of what this deal means based on what we know right now. Well, we saw the word unprecedented come out quite a bit when this new story broke, but it's actually quite similar to a deal that AMC had made five years ago, almost to the day, basically, in July 2015 with Paramount over the release of some of its movies. Back then, it was uh, current CEO Adam Aaron's first year during its, his tenure leading AMC. They made a similar pact to allow a 17-day exclusivity window for select Paramount titles, depending on the film. After that, when those titles would go under a number of screens that they were playing in, they would go into this premium VOD space where there would be a revenue sharing component in there. At the time, that was also sort of revolutionary. It garnered a lot of headlines, but that initiative fizzled fairly quickly after uh, pushback and criticism from a lot of other major circuits, basically saying, hey, this seems to be a unilateral deal from one company that is affecting the business practices of the rest of the global exhibition community. This is essentially the exact same situation. AMC has uh, gone into an agreement with one studio. They are free to do so, and they are free to negotiate similar agreements with other studios. But at the same time, if Universal wants this to stick, they'll have to make a similar deal with as many other major circuits as they can. Otherwise, this really isn't going to get much traction. So the way I look at it, Russ, this is only going to work, or this is going to work for those circuits that also have a proprietary VOD platform, so they can uh, more easily engage with that PVOD rev share. And it's only going to work if Universal can get a critical mass of screens in the North American market. That's a tall, tall order. On the flip side of that, this is the time to do it. You look at these VOD presences, you have Cineplex, the number one circuit in Canada and the number four in the market. They have their own VOD platform. Showcase, which is part of the Viacom family, and as we know, Paramount has already dipped their toe into the PVOD waters. Showcase Cinemas, the number, which is a top 10 circuit here in the US, also has its own VOD platform. There is a sort of framework for this to happen, 
should Universal do similar deals? I'm just not sure how majors that don't have a VOD platform, like multinationals such as Cineworld's Regal or Cinemark, are going to react to this. And then you also have the question of the much smaller players who are not going to have a VOD platform unless they somehow collectively form one or buy into an existing platform, both of which seem like unlikely deals in the short term, given everyone's uh, crisis of capital following an already cataclysmic 2020. So yeah, I'm, I'm really left to wonder, I guess, what seems more likely to you? Uh, does it seem more likely that Cinemark and Regal are going to end up moving forward into a VOD platform that they maybe weren't planning to do quickly, if ever? Or does it seem more likely that this deal is going to stall out when nobody else can sort of support it and support Universal in the way that AMC thinks they can? You know, that's a, that's a hard call to make on, on where exactly this goes. As you note, it would require either a big investment on a proprietary VOD platform that might not have even been in their plans, or it's going to create an, an additional barrier to that negotiation, not only for Universal, but to every other major studio that wants to sort of participate in this uh, new potential exclusivity window. It's going to be difficult, but ultimately, as you know, Russ, it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on mid-sized circuits, independents, and art houses that might be left out where this new setup for the business is headed. It's a very nerve-wracking time for exhibitors such as our guest today, Chris Johnson, the CEO of Classic Cinemas, which is a regional exhibitor in the Midwest operating uh, 15 locations, over 100 screens, that they're too small to be a major circuit with uh, financial power, like those companies that we just just mentioned. But they're also uh, too big to have the sort of dexterity that an independent or a single location might have. Yeah, and unfortunately, we spoke to Chris before this AMC news broke because, of course, having recently concluded that interview, the first thing I thought was, wow, I wish we had a chance to talk to him about this because it seems like precisely the sort of thing that would affect a circuit like Classic. But uh, we have a terrific conversation with Chris regardless, so we're eager to get into that. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. You're part of a multi-generation family here in the exhibition industry. Could you tell me a little bit of uh, your family's involvement and your history in the cinema sector? Absolutely. We actually played our first movie in August of 1978. So a little bit different than maybe sort of generational industries, so we opened our first theater in that time, which was a single screen theater in uh, Downers Grove, Tivoli Theater. And I actually started kind of at the same time that my dad did. He bought it as a real estate play and then the tenant moved out. And so he came in and I don't want to say was forced to uh, open a theater, but after interviewing prospective tenants or movie theater operators, he decided to give it a give it a shot on his own thanks to the former manager of the theater and, and, and went for it. And then from there, you know, we focused originally on bargain theaters and downtown locations and then kind of found all these abandoned or, or close to abandoned downtown theaters and 
you know, slowly built the circuit and uh, into what it is today. I'm trying to think August of 1978, what would have been the first movie that you opened with at the Tivoli? Well, it was Hot Lead and Cold Feet. Oh, wow. Uh, a Don Knotts uh, forgotten uh, gem, you know? So, Not forgotten. Yeah. Not forgotten, please. Yeah. And my first movie was actually Star Trek, as an usher, was Star Trek, the original. Oh, the, the motion picture. Nice. Yeah. So, so those, you know, so it goes back actually in April or March of this year, I celebrated my 40th year in the industry, which is, I started when I was 13 and, you know, it's just amazing how time flies. And now I'm, I'm kind of on the, you know, the old timer side, big time. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> well, happy anniversary. I'm Thank sorry you. that it had to, that had to fall in a year like this. Yeah. So be it. What are you going to do? Yep. Yeah. So that being the case for a circuit of your size, which is, you know, you're a strong circuit, you've got a number of theaters, but you're not one of the, you know, you're not one of the big three. What sort of challenges did that kind of February, March, April zone of this year pose for you and uh, classic cinemas? Yeah. So first, just from a a context standpoint, right at this moment, we have 130 screens in 15 locations. We're very geographically tight. Certainly February was, you know, no issues there, but heading into March, coronavirus was apparent. And so we had to make a proactive move. Actually, we made a move prior to, I think, all of the majors, and we put out a you know, a, a seating that we were going to do 60% of capacity. It was just a number that I came up with. And it was based on the idea that, you know, groups of more than one would be sitting together and then we'd put a space between the person or a seat between the next people, but the next uh, party. But the idea, you know, and getting all, all of our protocols. So the idea was putting together a professional piece, you know, being a smaller company, kind of putting together this graphical, you know, message and getting the word out of all the safe things that we were going to do and how we were going to operate. And it was very well received and got a lot of feedback. And then four days later, we were shut down. So it was, <laughs> it, uh, it didn't, you know, really get us anything other than, you know, people kind of were happy with the messaging and everything that we did. Being a smaller th theater and limited resources, you know, it is, it is a bit challenging to get that word out and to get the graphics made in such a way that, you know, really kind of represents, you know, what you're doing. I think the other part of the uncertainty or challenge was, uh, you know, when we closed down was trying to figure out when we would be able to reopen. So that was the other, you know, the other side of it, which I guess is probably similar to the other circuits. But in my mind, you know, everything was getting open as soon as possible. And during that pause, you're starting to sort of see, Chris, what policies you you enact, how you sort of prepare. I'm sure you're talking to local, local authorities and getting a game plan for that reopening. What did you learn from that initial reopening? And if I'm not mistaken, you ended up having to close your doors back again. Could you walk us through that process? Yeah, absolutely. So, the first part of it is that on May 27th, we opened our one theater in Wisconsin. And then on June 26th, we opened the majority of our other theaters in Illinois. And then we did close all of them 
two weeks after that on July 9th on our own. But some of the things that I learned, number one, the health departments are your friend and communication is your friend. You know, you definitely want to reach out to everyone, you know, before you open and make sure that everything that you're doing fits their protocols and their needs. And I have to say, when you reach out ahead of time, they're nothing more than delighted because most people aren't doing that and you're discussing your plan. So, you know, don't be afraid of the health departments and the authorities because it's, I think in this case, it's much better to kind of work your plan than to ask for forgiveness or be shut down. So that was one thing. The other thing, as far as opening up, we opened up and we had amazing response and comments for those people that came out, but it just wasn't enough. And the one thing that I learned from our longer opening in Wisconsin was that we had the same number of people every week. And I certainly monitor the grosses on ComScore. And there wasn't any exhibitor that was building on their grosses week after week after week. It was just this steady state. So you essentially were doing about 10% of the business. And I couldn't find any example of anybody, you know, doing amazing business or, or even, I shouldn't say amazing. I should just say something that you could, you know, get your arms around and go, yeah, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And that's how I'm going to grow my business. It just wasn't there. So, so that was the challenge. And that's why we shut down the expenses just weren't worth the, you know, the risk or the, the sales candidly. Throughout that, you kept the Tivoli shuttered, correct? I did. Yeah. So in Illinois, we had negotiated a 50% capacity with the state, but in the end, they changed it from 50% or 50 people maximum. And so, you know, there were a couple theaters, but the Tivoli is a little over a thousand seat theater. And while we did not need, you know, we were hoping to get a maximum of 250 people. It was certainly 50 people just, you know, wasn't going to do it with the amount of staff that we have and only having a single screen as well. You know, most of our locations, I think we average eight screens per location or maybe a little more, but, you know, just only having 50 people in the building at one time, it's just, just isn't, doesn't make sense. And candidly, I was trying to make a point as well that, Hey, these rules really do affect downtowns and kind of the, the icon or the beacon of the downtown. What I find interesting in all of this is that looking at the different locations you have in your circuit, they all have sort of a different profile. You mentioned that in Wisconsin, you opened earlier than you did in other places in Illinois. Obviously, the Tivoli is this big, iconic, historic theater. It's in a different designation. From your experience, what sort of theaters are looking at a reopening where they can sustain with this existing audience? In other words, what sort of theaters can survive in this in-between period of restricted admissions and no new releases? I hate to say it, but I don't really think anybody can. And that sounds bleak, but, you know, I really study the grosses and filter down, you know, the information and the, you know, the two-pronged problem is the one is the content and the other is the perception of you know movie theaters and i just think that you need a little bit more sort of reason 
to go through the issue of going to a theater, you know, in that being new movies in order to get out and have word spread that this is a viable and enjoyable activity. And, you know, like I said, to your point, we have an 18 screen mall theater and then we have this single screen downtown theater and probably everything in between. The harder issue is when, you know, for instance, our theater in Elmhurst is a 10 screen first run theater and we own sort of the other tenants in the in the downtown and and so you have these other tenants that rely on the traffic that you provide them and without any traffic you know it kind of does sort of vacate the downtown to some respect and so we really want to get those you know back open and in play but yeah to my mind the new movies look like you know those are going to be a possibility but the realities that theaters are safe, we have to change that perception and get that out there. And, you know, and that's probably the biggest challenge of now. But to answer your original question, I don't think anybody can make it in this environment. That's just my thoughts on it. That point that you made in there, I think bears a little bit of emphasis that it's easy to see the theatrical business as a single column that exists on its own, but in fact, it's interrelated with all of these other businesses that are around it. You know, bars and restaurants support you, and in turn, you support bars and restaurants and other businesses that benefit from foot traffic. And I don't see that point being made, and I don't see that really being discussed in media overall as we're talking about how all of these businesses need to move forward into whatever the next phase is going to be. I think you're absolutely correct. And and that's where we, I'll get sidetracked here for a second, but everybody always likes to throw streaming and PVOD right out. But in my mind, it's the night out. You know, we're talking about a night out. So what does a night out entail? Well, the second you decide you're doing a night out, streaming and PVOD don't come into play, but a restaurant does, a bowling alley does, a movie theater does, you know, the bar, whatever that might be. So all those experiential destinations sort of rely on each other. And, you know, the idea that, you know, if you look at restaurant tours and that they like to cluster because you want to create this sort of you know, this area where you can walk from place to place or, again, entertainment destination. So I absolutely think, it. you know, it is this reliance on one another to sort of come back to life and invigorate that night out concept. And there are so many other, you know, businesses and services that are tied to that. So definitely a point of emphasis. And it's a little bit different from, you know, the sector of the business that is trying to become kind of the all-in destination with the bar and restaurant and the theater and whatnot. That distinguishes, your circuit is distinguished from that by the fact that you are part of an ecosystem, of an economic ecosystem. I am uh, a traditional theater operator with a couple of asterisks on there. You know, I probably have a higher percentage of recliners than most, and I do serve alcohol in the lobby, but it's just more of a supplemental, like, hey, I want to grab a drink while I'm watching the movie. I'm not going to do an in-theater service. Again, there is nothing wrong with that format. I just know that I don't have the ability or desire to execute that. So we love having 
restaurants and bars and activity next to, you know, our locations, as I'm sure probably even the dine-ins, you know, might agree with that as well. And that's interesting in this conversation that we're having on really pointing out the ecosystem of a night out, of an entertainment out, and that's sort of being interrelated with the recovery of the box office. Of course, there's been a lot of attention being paid to new releases, to the impact that they might have on the industry. Somehow that conversation has been a little bit derailed by the constant new releases and shifting in the release schedule that has happened. In this context, Chris, how much of an impact will new releases have in the sort of recovery effort? Is it something that can exist on its own, or do you really need to have that in conjunction with a sort of wider reopening, meaning that even if new releases come out at the end of this year, it really isn't until that ecosystem, as Russ put it, is recovered that we'll start to see some progress in the finances. This is a long-winded way of asking, how much of the future of this industry relies on a single film like, I don't know, Tenet, Mulan, or even Wonder Woman? That is a great point. It absolutely doesn't rely on one film. I do think there is something to be said about starting the train, you know, getting it going. But it has to be, and I I really think it's twofold. The new movies is definitely, that's kind of like the air we breathe. We have to have that. But the other thing too is you have to have some consistency that Hey, not only is, I mean, movies aside, you also have to sort of gain that trust and that perception that we are okay, you know, as an industry, and it isn't something that we should be scared of. And that is a daunting task to get that sort of narrative out there. And I think there's definitely ways that that can be done. But, you know, a lot of people in their mind who don't necessarily know what's going on at the theater level, think, oh, crowded public gathering, and that's, you know, bad, stay away. When the reality of it is that, you know, each of these auditoriums really is spaced out amazingly far away. I mean, just by the virtue of the size of the chairs and everything. But going back to the the movie, there has to be a wide range of movies, and um, there has to be consistency and the ability to know that you can count on these and market these these pictures and and I do hope that you know that we can start sort of counting on these uh, releases to hold their place because there is going to be more sort of turmoil and unrest uh, prior to that you know that steady state and we really just need them to bridge the gap to that steady state in order for it to survive. Because I think, although very biased, you know, for movie theaters, there is definitely, you know, study after study that you're going to harvest the life cycle of content if you're able to, you know, do theatrical and all the way through. So I'm bullish on the industry. It's just this gap is just daunting. I've probably overused that word, but it is daunting. What do you see as, as you look at your budgets and timelines going forward, what seems to you like a viable ramp up period? You know, if, for example, doors could open on August 1st, and that's just a, you know, an arbitrary date, 
what to you seems like a viable period of warm up to would be acceptable to you or that would be viable for you from a business perspective between that opening date and when we're back to whatever normal is going to be? So the one thing that I am desperately trying to do is not open and close and then open and close. And that I think is my biggest objective. And so I want to step back in to, you know, the opening with the idea that I'm going to be able to sustain whatever that opening looks like until, you know, the normal state happens. And so I was trying in the first part to be, you know, take one for the team and get open and, you know, do all the protocols and that, knowing that I would lose a little money, but to sort of help spur the distributors to, you know, to release movies. But this time I am taking a more cautious approach in that, hey, you know what? I don't need to be first. I don't need to sort of jump on the, uh, you know, every release. And I'm going to take a look at it closely. Look, right now there, you know, 821 seems like, you know, the time to open based on movies, but I have not committed to that yet because I still think there's a lot of information that goes out there. But I applaud that needs to come out, but I applaud those that do give it a shot. And uh, I also think that, you know, kind of the big three announcing their dates does impact the narrative and that it is important that as an industry, we kind of open up. It's not that we can all, you know, get together and make a mutually you know, the, the same decision, but I definitely think it matters to have some mass, you know, some number of screens that is sizable and enough to get the conversation started. It seems like the marketing and the messaging and the experience that the big three can bring to the table, especially in an instance like reopening, ultimately only benefits you because those companies can bear a significant part of the brunt of educating audiences on when and how to go back and on the fact that it's safe or whatever other questions where you might not have the resources to dedicate as much to to those topics. Yeah, and I think the other thing too though is, you know, is that water cooler effect. If you don't have the number of screens, then there isn't necessarily that water cooler effect. And I got to think of a new term because that's so outdated. But the idea that, you know, this is top of mind social engagement, you know, oh, did you see Tenant? Did you see whatever? You know, oh, you got to see it. It's amazing. You know, whatever it is. And if you only have, you know, 400 screens nationwide, it just, you can't have that impact. So I don't even know if the protocols and that is, I mean, that's certainly important, but I'm actually more focused on having the wide breadth of screens throughout the country to get that and across the globe, actually, you know, to get that discussion going about, you know, not about the movie going, but about what you saw when you were at the movie and how cool it was and, you know, whatever that might be. So that's where I'm kind of focused on is that uh, collective significance of all the screens in domestically and globally. You want to pull it back to the actual experience of going to the movies, that thing that brought us all here in the first place. Exactly. Why it's so cool. I get that. 
That makes a lot of sense. I want that again. Yes, absolutely. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. It was terrific to talk to you and hear your story about how uh, you've weathered this year and what you're looking for going forward. Before we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to throw out or stories that you want to share uh, from your experience this year? I'll say one thing that knowing that our last night in business was July 9th. My son and I went to one of our PLF screens and watched Dark Knight. And knowing that it was our last night going to the movies where the first time around, we kind of got shut down and didn't know it was our last night, you know, as we were watching it, and really sort of took it all in. And it just was so impactful in a movie that I had seen before, but I just cannot wait for Tenant and the host of other movies coming down the way, whether it be, you know, Wonder Woman or all of the movies that follow. So I think that people, once they sort of experience that, will just be, you know, ready to build on it. But it's going to take longer than we think. And I hope that the distributors have the patience to, you know, work to that normal state and sacrifice a little bit for the sake of the industry, which will be strong. It will be different, but it will be strong after the sort of reopening and virus has you know, moved to the sideline. Thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to hear your story. And yeah, I feel the same way. I'm, I believe we'll have this again and I believe it'll be strong. And uh, But I also think it's going to take a while and we're all working towards the same goal. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the time. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Thank you again for joining us, Chris. Daniel, awesome as always to talk to you. I enjoy our time together every week and I really missed it last week. So it's it's nice to be back. Well, guess what? I'm going to be sitting out next week as I go on my own vacation and our colleague Rebecca Polly will be joining us again next week with you. A vacation? What is a vacation? It's something French people do, apparently. And <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> if I, we take any indication from our uh, corporate overlook. I, I see this. I get a lot of out-of-office messages now and I'm very jealous as I read them. So yeah, next week, to paraphrase something Daniel just said off mic, uh, James Bond will return. We are going to be recording an interview with the Frida Cinema, which is an Orange County, California cinema. They are just south of Los Angeles. They do amazing programming. It's a theater I've been following personally for quite a while, and it's just far enough that I can't easily get there. So I'm excited to speak to them about how 2020 has been for them and what their outlook is going forward. And yeah, so we hope that you will join us again next week. Thanks for listening. Please Please share our show with any of your friends who you think might enjoy it. Box Office Podcast is produced by Caitlin Kehoe and recordeditpodcast.com. This episode was primarily written and coordinated by Daniel Luria and was narrated by Daniel and me, Russ Fisher. Thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you again soon.